What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. There is a, a bomb waiting to go off deeply embedded in our financial system. Uh, corporate debt is at an all-time high. Personal debt is at an all-time high as well. Banksters are now doing with mortgages what they, back in 2008, what they were doing with mortgages that blew up our economy. They're doing that now with corporate debt and packaging it, slicing and dicing it, and selling it off as, as AAA-rated investments when none of the debt in it is even A-rated. Is this going to blow up in our face? Not to mention the fact that everybody's predicting that there's a huge wave of corporate bankruptcies, particularly small and medium-sized companies, coming down the road in a matter of months when all this federal support runs out. What the hell is going on? Where is this going to lead us? Professor Richard Wolff is with us, the economist and co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism, democracyatwork.info is the website. He also, his personal website, rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf with two fs or at democracy at wrk. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Your thoughts on what's the state of debt with, and I also saw a piece that I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal this morning saying that worldwide debt has now exceeded 100% of GDP. What's going on? Well, I think you're seeing, and I hesitate to say it, but it has to be said, I think you're seeing the unraveling of a system. I'm, I'm a critic of capitalism, so I could, I suppose, say I told you so. I take no pleasure in it at all, but I think that's what you're seeing. So let me explain. The crash of 2008 and nine is called the Great Recession because it was, at that time, uh, the second worst crash of capitalism in its history after the Great Depression of the 1930s. One of the major ways that the United States government tried in panic in those last four months of 2008 to deal with it was by pumping huge amounts of money into the economy, which continued in 2009 and 10, and dropping interest rates to unprecedented lows. Here we are, 11 years later, 10 years later, depending on how you count, and what do we got? Another crash of capitalism. But this one has within it, and on top of it, the scars from the last one. What do I mean? When you drop interest rates to virtually zero in the aftermath 
of 2008. You are sending an invitation to every corporation, every business in the United States, and similar things happened elsewhere, but particularly here. The invitation is, whatever problem your company has, whatever difficulty you've encountered, you now know that the easiest, quickest, and cheapest way to deal with your problem is to go borrow virtually free money, money that you can get from the banks and ultimately from the Federal Reserve at 1%, 1.5%, 2%, way less than ever before. To the surprise of no one, the corporate sector in America, business, borrowed money over the last decade beyond anything anyone had ever seen before. Good companies, bad companies, and all in between, loaded up on this free money to solve whatever problem they had. And of course, since it's capitalism, amongst these companies were crooks and hustlers and speculators of all kinds, who also, of course, took uh, advantage of the low income, uh, the low cost money, borrowing for very dubious and highly risky investments. They all could keep going unless and until something happened to bring us kind of sharply up against the fact that the underlying businesses that had borrowed weren't in a position to repay. We would have had that in the crash that began in February of this year, the downturn of capitalism, which is normal. But if this one is not only bad, but on top of it, the pandemic, now we have the great danger that many, many businesses will go out. And therefore, the arrangement that we can handle a few bankruptcies is now threatened by a more wholesale declaration of inability to pay, and that is even bigger because of all this borrowing than what we saw back in 2008. Bottom line, nothing was learned, the same or parallel games were played, and we are now living out the risks that flowed from the way we panicked and responded in 2008. I absolutely get that, and I share your critique of capitalism. The system, however, is probably not going to change in the next few years, at least not in any big consequential way. I'm wondering if, I mean, we used to regulate debt in the United States. Uh, I believe it was Richard Nixon who did away with federal usury laws prior to the late to the early 1970s. It was illegal to charge more than 10 percent interest. He blew that off. And as I recall, the ability of banks to or uh, any third party to buy and tranche and resell debt, as we saw with CDOs, with the, with the real estate market in 2008, as we're seeing now with collateralized loan obligations, CLOs, with the corporate debt market. The ability to do that, that was illegal prior to the Reagan administration. I mean, this all came about as a consequence of this great experiment of Reaganism, did it not? Isn't it, I, I mean, aren't there some things that we can do to mitigate the, dam- the damage and the danger going forward? Yeah, it's just we're a little bit of, you know, closing the barn door after all the uh, livestock have have left. At this point, we are facing, let me give you an example that sort of answers your questions. In the months of April and May, we now know a little under half of all commercial uh, establishments did not pay their rent to whoever their landlord was. 
the building in which their store was located, the mall in which their store was located. Half. That is a spectacular default, much greater than the population or the working class people uh, not paying rent on their apartments is the commercial enterprises who didn't. Okay, the landlords are therefore screwed in this arrangement. What do they do? The landlords inform the banks in the United States, from whom they've borrowed to build the mall, to, to own the building, and so on, that they can't pay off their debts to the banks because, as landlords, they're not getting the rents upon which they depend. So the landlords are, are hiring lawyers to threaten eviction to the tenants, the bankers are hiring lawyers to go to court against the landlords. This is a system, and I don't mean this rhetorically, I mean it uh, in empirical detail. The system is falling apart. None of the normal lease arrangements, none of the normal handshake obligations, recognized bills paid, that's not happening anymore. That's a complete disintegration of what normally holds a society together. So I think you're right. Uh, this, you know, we can't just keep talking about capitalism. But in a sense, I don't have to anymore because the, mm. the immediate realities that businesses and individuals face, 42 million on, on, on getting unemployment, uh, court cases filling up with God knows how many evictions of both commercial and household tenants. Uh, this, is a, this is the kind of thing that happens when empires fall apart. And I suspect it is, of, it is of a seriousness that really will put the system as a whole into question a lot sooner than any of us thought. Yeah, remarkable stuff. Professor Wolf, it's always so great talking with you. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, and his most recent book, Understanding Socialism, rdwolf with two fs.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So do you think that our economy is going to survive? And frankly, if, you know, if Joe Biden becomes president or anybody, I mean, can we fix this? Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis. Actually, it's about uh, supply-side economics. Uh, I understand the criticism that it increases uh, income inequality and it fails to generate the promised uh, government revenue through uh, economic growth. My question to you is, what are your biggest uh, issues with it? Or trickle-down? Well, supply-side economics is a scam. I mean, that's my biggest concern about it. If you go back and you read, uh, you know, Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith's book, actually his book Theory of Moral Sentiments is an even better book, um, you know, about the deficiencies of capitalism. But basically both of them point out in both those books that what produces uh, wealth for the nation, what produces um, you know, a strong middle class, although it's not a phrase that Adam Smith used, but, but uh, you know, social stability as a result of general wealth among working people, um, which is a paraphrase of, of things that Adam Smith actually said, mostly in theory of moral sentiments, um, is, is, uh, is wages. And wages are what drive demand. Wages, in fact, are so much drive demand in other words, if you have money in your pocket, you go out and buy things. When you buy things, 
the companies that sell those things have to buy more of them. The companies that manufacture things have to make more of them. The companies that manufacture those things have to hire people to make those things, uh, or they have to buy more robots to make those things, in which case the robot manufacturers have to hire people to make the robots, you know, whatever. That you having money in your pocket is what drives the economy because it drives demand. And, and, and that's so much the case that economists don't refer to wages as wages. They refer to wages as aggregate demand, right? The sum of all the demand in the economy is the sum of all the wages in the economy minus uh, basic living expenses like rent. So, uh, you know, that's, that's been our understanding. You, that's, you know, uh, Adam Smith, 1776, Wealth of Nations. Um, 17, I think it was 1781, he published Theory of Moral Sentiments. Um, then you go to David Ricardo, uh, 1809. David Ricardo, one of the great economists, uh, his Iron Law of Labor. And his, uh, and his uh, I, or maybe it was called the Iron Law of Wages, but, um, and, and he also wrote extensively on the impact of immigration, diluting labor pools, and the impact of, of, of unions. And David Ricardo pointed out the same thing. Wages are what drives the economy. Now, that was always believed to be the case. That was known to be the case. There's a million examples of that. Uh, probably the best example is how Franklin Roosevelt got us out of the, out of the Great Depression. John Maynard Keynes said, if you hire, and, and the way that FDR did it was he put millions of people back to work, planting trees, building dams, uh, you know, just doing some things that were really, really productive. Other things, you know, hiring painters, I mean, artists to do things like all the art that's in the Detroit, uh, Muse the Detroit Art Institute right now, which is just mind boggling. So, you know, he put these people to work and gave them a paycheck. That paycheck then got us out of the Great Depression because it produced demand. And right. so, you know, that, I mean, that, that's just like, you know, econ 101, right? And that everybody always understands. So what happened in, in 1980, in the early 1980s, in the, in the early Reagan administration, was they wanted to come up with a rationalization for massively cutting the taxes on rich people. And so the theory was, if we cut taxes on rich people, and on businesses, they, you know, because when Reagan came into office, fully one third of all federal receipts, all the money that supports all of, you know, this is the reason why Eisenhower was able to build the national highway system, why during the Eisenhower administration, we built thousands, tens of thousands of new schools, new hospitals, new roads, bridges, airports, all kinds, you know, and most of this infrastructure we're still using from the 1950s. The reason he was able to do this, one third of all the income was coming from corporate taxes. But they wanted to radically cut those corporate taxes and radically cut the taxes on the billionaires and they had to come up with a rationalization for it. And so the rationalization they came up with was, if we cut taxes on these guys, they will produce more goods. They'll run their factories, you know, they'll be able to use that money to hire more people, expand their factories and produce more goods. Now. Why would that be a good thing if demand comes from wages? They're not talking about increasing wages. So by, you know, by any measure of classical economics, literally from Aristotle through Adam Smith through John Maynard Keynes, and we were still in a Keynesian economy in 1981, um, by any rational, you know, that, that should be a completely meaningless and BS argument. So they came up with a new argument that said, well, if manufacturers manufacture more stuff, if there's more stuff on the shelves of the stores, 
then people will buy more stuff because it's available. If there's more supply, there will be more economic activity. And so instead of demand side, you know, the demand side driving the economy, they said these brilliant, you know, the, 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 the Stephen Moore was actually one of the big proponents of this said, well, actually it's, it's, it's supply side. We've got to, we've got to incentivize the job creators and the, and the billionaires and the big corporations by cutting their taxes and they will make more goods and that more goods flooding our stores. And this is also the rationalization that they use for opening the door to China. Cheap Chinese goods coming into the United States. There's more stuff. Walmart is filled with more stuff than they had before. It's all made in China, but it's cheap. And therefore, that will stimulate the economy. Now, 40 years on, we can look back and say, say this was complete BS. But that's, that's the history of it, Dennis. I got a question about the income for the you know, different income groups, income groups in society. From 1940 to 1980, the top, uh, bottom 90% saw an income rise of 47%. From 1980 to today, it's only it's actually declined by three percent. Could you explain why the right. incomes for the middle class have not risen like they used to uh, post World War sure. II compared to post 1980? Sure, there's a very very simple explanation. Um, we could get into the esoterica of the impact of tax cuts and things like that, but the really simple explanation for probably 80% of the effect is uh, when Ronald Reagan came into office, about a third of Americans had a union job. They worked in union shops. Uh, the assault on unions had just begun when Reagan put an anti-union uh, person in as Secretary of Labor, the first one in the history of our country, uh, the first anti-union Secretary of Labor. Uh, this, he packed the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court started ruling against labor and started chipping away at uh, union rights. And we have seen, and, and by the way, a union job sets the floor for jobs in the, in the larger economy, you know, in the surrounding neighborhoods. And so when a third of America was unionized, two-thirds of America had an income and benefits package that was basically, you know, a union package because, you know, regular employers had to compete with unionized employers uh, for benefits, you know, for employees. And so when Reagan came into office, it was about two-thirds of America who had basically good union jobs. Now, in the private sector, it's 6% who have union jobs, which means 12% of America has good union jobs in the private sector. And, uh, you know, that tells you pretty much everything you need to know, Dennis. And also, um, I know that you say that the top marginal tax rate was also acted as a barrier for CEOs to raise the wages of their workers in companies. What, what would you say is the ideal, optimal, um, top marginal tax rate? I know right now it's like 39%. What is the ideal? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's been reduced even from that. And, and, and in fact, you know, a lot of CEOs are reconfiguring their companies so that they can take their, their salaries and run it through their, um, uh, you know, run it as earned, I forget the phrase, but, uh, you know, it's, it's down around 15%. Um, my point is that uh, top marginal income tax rate doesn't so much uh, it doesn't affect wages down in the bottom half of the scale. It, it causes CEOs to take less pay. Uh, again, in 1980, when Reagan came into office, the average CEO pay was 30 times what the lowest paid employee in the company was. Today, it, depending on your industry, it's anywhere from 300 times to 10,000 times. 
And the reason why is because that cap got taken off. Um, I, the tax rate when Reagan came into office was 74%, the top tax rate. Um, now, as you point out, it's 39% or in that neighborhood. The functional uh, top tax rate is actually much, much lower than that as a result of all the loopholes that they put into it. So I would say anything over 50%. If you look around the world, you look at country after country after country, countries like Israel and Denmark that have relative, relatively egalitarian societies with less income inequality, less disparity in incomes, they have top income tax rates over 50%. And it works fine for them. They're not in a crisis. Their economies are not falling apart. Their companies are doing well. They're, they're tanking on the world. So I'd say Thank you, Tom. 50% does. You're welcome. Thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Jeff in San Francisco. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? You know, one of the hopes we have is the rise in union membership. Basically, if the politicians are basically bought by the corporations up there on on the Hill, and what happened? Yeah, you, thanks you to the Supreme Court. That, yeah, with um, basically with with Clinton came in, and he, he we weren't getting the money from the unions anymore. He started taking it from the bank. So if we could get strong union membership, and people realize essential workers are essential, we need to pay them a living wage. You know, yeah. I think fifteen dollars an hour. We need to go to twenty. You know, well, it's not just a living wage, Jeff. If you gave people the right to unionize, you wouldn't have to worry about the minimum wage. Well, how and, you know, Omar was made a good point, And I hope you do bring that up to a uh, Why doesn't the progressive part of the Democratic act like the Freedom Caucus or the Tea Party did back in the day? I mean, they you know, they hated the Tea Party because they would just say, no, we're not signing that. Why can't they have the the oomph to behave like that? I mean, in the same sense, I, I don't know what they do. They say they're going to kill their kids when they get up there. I have some hope with that Bowman going in there. He seems pretty feisty, and I like that, you know. And yeah. AOC, it seems like they knocked her down a peg, and she's still out there fighting. But I just, I just don't yeah. get it. I just, you know, yeah. so that's. That's my rant. Yeah, I, I, I get that, and I'll, I just wrote it down, so I'll, I'll bring it up with uh, Congressman Khanna. And with regard to unionization, you know, most people don't realize uh, Denmark, for example, has uh, no minimum wage. And yet people at McDonald's make the equivalent of $18 an hour. Um, and burgers are like 20 cents more than here, but, you know, it's infinitesimal because labor is not that big a piece of the, of the cost of a burger. Um, but the reason why they don't need a minimum wage in Denmark and, and several other of these Scandinavian countries and Northern European countries is because they have something like 80, 90 percent unionization. Basically, there's no need for a minimum wage because, you know, everybody's negotiating their contracts, you know, uh, you know, uh, collectively. And uh, it's it's really working. Ron in Minot, North Dakota. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind today? Hey, thanks, Tom. A question for you. I, I just recently learned that the great saint of the, you know, the Adam Smith, the great saint of supply side and, and free market, um, that he actually wrote on feudalism, and he predicted or suggested that there would be a new age, a new feudal age, would be the result of all this free market uh, economy. I was surprised at that, and and then thinking of this last election with people like Tom Steyer and Bloomberg, and and then those are the overt ones. The covert ones are people like Sheldon Adelson and, and the Koch brothers and Bezos and, and even Bill Gates. These are people with a lot of power because they have a lot of money, 
And I wonder, right. my question to you is, I know you're writing on that in a book, and my question is, is has, has this come true? Are we in a new feudal age? And has um, money really destroyed our democracy? It's really being run by those with money. That's my question, and I'll sign off to, the, to what you say. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. Uh, my answer is yes. <laughs> and and uh, the book that I have coming out in a month or so, The Hidden History of Monopolies, American Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, is about how business has used that money to basically take over government. And then the book that's coming out next spring, The Hidden History of uh, Oligarchy, and we haven't uh, fine-tuned the title on that yet. I just submitted the book last week. Uh, to the publisher for the final edits. Uh, that book is, is about how, because of those two Supreme Court decisions in 1976 and 1978, and I reference this in the book on, on the Supreme Court, the hidden history of the Supreme Court, um, the Buckley decision in 76 and the Bellotti decision in 78. Uh, what the- Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Those decisions said was for the first time in the history of America that billionaires or corporations owning politicians was not corruption or bribery. It was simply free speech protected by the First Amendment. And that those two decisions in the mid-70s led directly to the Reagan revolution. They led directly to the election of Ronald Reagan. Uh, massive amounts of billionaire money, foundation money, and corporate money going into the Reagan campaign in 1980. And have maintained the Republican Party all these years. And, and then Gillens and Page did this amazing study in 2013. And they looked at, starting in 1980, going forward, and what they found was that 1980 was basically the last year that the desires of the majority of Americans, as expressed in opinion polls, were being translated into legislation in the federal Congress. Ever since then, the majority of Americans, what the majority of Americans want, has not become law. Instead, what has become law is what the top 5% want. So we are now an oligarchy. We have ceased to be a democratic republic. We are an oligarchy. And the question that I raise in my book on oligarchy that'll be out in the spring is, can we revert back to a democratic republic? And I lay out a, a, you know, a series of steps to do so in that book, uh, you know, which won't be out for nine months, thereabouts, something like that. It's something I've given a lot of thought to, and I'm very concerned about it. So, yeah, yeah. And so the, the uh, Monopoly book is, is basically how economic power gets concentrated in the United States and destroys small and medium-sized businesses and entrepreneurs. And then the spring book is about how political power gets concentrated in the United States. John in Apple Valley, California. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Thanks for waiting on hold. A lot of things, just like the lady that was on before, a lot of, a lot of thoughts, but uh, I'm limited to one, and so this is the one. I remember, and you're the historian, this is a, a, a history question. I remember when I was a young man, Carter was president, that the home loan interest rates were like 15, 17%. It was really outrageous. And I'm just wondering if. Yeah, we had a 13% mortgage during those years. Well, but I'm just wondering if that was, if the banks were part of the reason and, and the, 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 the way they ravaged the economy with that, or the home, home buying anyway, real estate um, business. If that was part also of the fall of Mr. Carter, President Carter. I mean, if the banks right. were in on it, and, and that's why they did it. That's, that's kind of my thought. I don't know. That's why I'm asking you, the historian. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, that, that was not the case. Um, what had happened was, uh, let me just back up and, and give you a, an abstract uh, uh, lesson in or story about how inflation happens. Inflation, uh, which is the debasement of currency, the reduction in value of a, of a currency, happens from one of two reasons, typically. Either one, the, uh, the, the, the government produces more currency than there is need for the currency. So they flood the market with that currency and the value of every dollar goes down because there's more, value, there's more dollars in circulation. 
Um, that has never happened in the United States, um, but that's by and large what happened in Germany uh, after World War I with the hyperinflation. Um, and you could argue that's what happened in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. But, the, but the second thing right. that, caused that causes hyperinflation um, that also was the major contributor, actually, to the German hyperinflation is if a commodity was, which is absolutely essential to the functioning of an economy becomes very, very scarce, the price of that economy, that commodity explodes. And therefore, that explosion in price of that one commodity echoes through the rest of the, of the economy, driving up prices. And that happened in Germany with regard to food after World War I. There was actually a mini famine. And that happened in the United States with regard to oil in the early 70s uh, as a result of two oil, uh, Arab oil embargoes. And so what happened was the price of oil exploded in the United States. In fact, it more than quadrupled in one year. And that then, because almost everything is made out of oil, even our food is made out of oil, because oil, you know, they make fertilizer out of oil, oil fuels the machines that we use to, to you know, tractors and things, it gets our food to us, you know, by trucks and things, oil affects everything. And so that radical increase in the price of oil as a result of the Arab oil embargo drove inflation in the United States. So to reduce inflation, the chairman of the Fed said, we need to slow the economy down. We need to induce a mini recession, which will produce deflation. Uh, it'll reduce prices and increase the value of the dollar. And so he raised interest rates in order to slow down the economy. And that's what was going on. The, the rise in interest rates throughout the late 70s was purely done by the Fed, and it was purely done to try to slow down the economy so that we didn't tip into a worse inflationary spiral. Um, you, there are people who argue that that was not the proper remedy, or that you know it shouldn't have been done that way, or it should have been done more slowly, and you know that, that hurt Carter, and it's one of the reasons Reagan won. But the bottom line is that's why it happened. Richard in Pasadena, California. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind today? Uh, what's on my mind is uh, whether or not we're uh, feudal serfs uh, and our police department. I uh, have a quote, if you'll let me read it, from a 1787. The means of defense against foreign dangers historically have become the instruments of tyranny at home. Throughout all Europe, the armies kept under the pretext of defending, have enslaved the people. Yeah, it sounds like something that uh, Jefferson or some of his anti-army colleagues would have said. Yeah, James Madison. James Madison, yeah, okay. Yeah. Jefferson's protege. Um, this, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, this is why they put into the Constitution that you, the entire Congress, every two years, has to decide again every two years whether they want to have a standing army during times of peace now we haven't had a time of peace uh, in quite some time but um uh, well the the two-year requirement still stands and uh yeah i think to a large extent we have become feudal serfs and i think that that's probably a, a pretty good analogy um you know feudalism and serfdom so yeah, we're uh, enslaved uh, for sure uh, hey uh, can i say just yeah. one more thing about um uh <clears throat> Uh, Richard Wolf the other day said that there are um, there were 315 million billionaires uh, before the pandemic, and then they've added 15 billionaires since. 
I'm wondering, isn't there one common sense billionaire who can fund Pacifica Radio and free speech radio and television? I mean, this is crazy yeah. that, that this is out in the limb like Wouldn't that, that be nice? No, it's, I mean, it was, uh, you know, a group of oligarchs who helped put together the Rush Limbaugh show. It was oligarchs who took over, uh, you know, uh, iHeartRadio, also known as Clear Channel back in the day. Uh, it was oligarchs who, who took over um, uh, Cumulus Radio. It was oligarchs who, who you know, uh, Comcast oligarchs who took over NBC. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, I have not seen any left-wing oligarchs ex exhibit any interest in media. And in fact, I wrote an open letter to Tom Steyer back yeah. uh, a year ago, maybe thereabouts, you know, during the primaries, in yeah. which I said, you know, if you're going to put your money and efforts into something, instead of running for president, you should buy iHeartRadio. And at that particular point, it was for sale. And it was for sale for about $1.1 billion. And it would have made a, a great investment. I mean, you know, it'll actually produce revenue. It'll make money if it's well run. And, you know, you could put good progressive programming on it. And he never responded to that. Um, I, I, I think it's real unfortunate, Richard. I, I, Ralph Nader, who uh, wrote the foreword to my new book on Monopoly uh, back uh, six, eight, ten years ago, wrote a book called Only the Super Rich Can Save Us Now, in yep. which he basically argued that because the Supreme Court has enabled uh, oligarchy in the United States to, so, so that we now have government run of, by, and for super rich people, yeah. that the super rich people of goodwill are going to have to step up and step in and make things happen. And to a large extent, George Soros has been doing that much of his life, but he's been doing it on the, on the world stage, and he's been doing it with big issues like the fate and future of democracy, small d democracy. Um, and, but uh, in terms of getting, getting your hands dirty, you know, like uh, Charles Koch has done his entire life, um, I'm not seeing that on the left, and I think it's a, it's a real tragedy. Richard, thank you for the call. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, 
propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Tom Harbin here with you. Uh, Janine on the Big Island in Hawaii. Hey, Janine, we were just talking about your island. Your island. Uh, Donald yes, Trump uh, seems to think that you shouldn't be so safe there. All right. I am so glad you brought that up because it's not getting a lot of attention. And it's, I don't know if it's ironic or what, that, it, that he's threatened that the same day that New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut are wanting to do the same thing. Right. Right. So, so I'm uh, hoping that they can kind of help back us because we've been totally successful here. And um, the thing that made the difference with us, in addition to the quarantining, was the masks. It was like as soon as our governor implemented everybody to wear masks and everybody had, that's when our curve dropped down to almost zero right after the masks. Wow. It's all about the masks. Was that back in but March? beyond or? that... Um, he implemented it in March, the end, towards the end of yep. March, about the 25th or so. Yep. yep. So it's been a miracle, and most everybody here has been compliant. Mm-hmm. And you Thankfully. said, but beyond that? But beyond that, on Saturday, when Trump was giving his um, speech in Arizona, I heard him say something that no one else has mentioned. I'm wondering if you have heard of this. Uh, it was the same day, that morning... Twitter flagged him for some of his um, stuff on Twitter. He was mad. And during his speech, he said he was issuing an executive order to stop the um, uh, liability for social media companies, the uh, liability right. protection for people suing right. them. Section, Section 210 of the Telecommunications Act, as I recall, yeah. I knew you would know, but I, I, I don't know much about this, but I think I recall hearing Mark Zuckerberg say that if it wasn't for that protection, he would never have been able to even start Facebook. Well, he could have started it. It just, it just wouldn't have gotten to where it is with as much profit. I, I wrote an op-ed about this a few weeks ago. Um, okay. I, myself and, and a couple of friends of mine, uh, Sue Nethercutt, Nigel Peacock, Brad Walrod, the four of us basically ran... 30-some-odd forums for CompuServe back in the 1980s and the early 1990s. 
And uh, CompuServe paid us good money. I mean, we, we made a really good living at it for a while there to moderate the forums. I, I had 34 different forums on CompuServe. I ran the IBM PC support forum, the Macintosh support forum, the ADD support forum, the JFK assassination forum, the International Trade Forum, just a bunch of them. People posted messages because CompuServe could be held liable if somebody posted something that was defamatory or threatening or whatever. You know, we had to basically read every message. And I mean, there was a certain window within you know, of reasonableness. You know, if somebody posted something and we didn't catch it within a few hours, we were in trouble. So we had, you know, 24 hour staffing basically, um, which is why CompuServe paid us as well as they did. But uh, we, f- we caught that stuff. All that ended in 1996. And our, our gravy train, essentially, our, our job uh, ended in 1996 with the passage of the Telecommunications Act because CompuServe was no longer responsible for the content that people posted on their, on their, uh, on their forums, on their sites. And that, that is why Facebook is doing, and Twitter, that's why they are where they are. And what I suggested in this op-ed was that we should blow up Section 210 or 310, whichever it is, this part of the Telecommunications Act of 96 that gives immunity to people who have message boards, on, 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 you know, which is Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, social media, um, and their immunity. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is worth $75 billion. If he had to pay people like Nigel and Brad and me and Sue to, to, to basically moderate all of the various Facebook content, he might only be worth $70 billion. I mean, it's not the amount of money that CompuServe was paying us. I know it was peanuts compared to the amount of money they were raking in. They, they were such a huge profit center that H&R Block bought them and sucked them dry. And so, you know, uh, and, and, and Trump now is using this as a cudgel against Facebook because mostly people on the left who, have been saying Who has saying the biggest history of this. lawsuits being filed in America? <laughs> Donald yeah. Trump loves filing lawsuits. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, and, what and, if he just uh, sues people... the heck out of Facebook and Twitter until they're bankrupt? He can't sue them because of the because of this immunity that was provided by the Telecommunications Act. But if he can get Congress to undo that he immunity, wrote an executive, an ex, he said he, he said he just wrote an executive order removing it. Right. In the yeah. Speech. See, I, I, I you know, Nobody I know that, it. and it's and not being reported I, anywhere. But see, he doesn't have that power, Janine. He doesn't have that power. I mean, this is, you know, he, he t- keep in mind, this is a guy who on, a, on an average day tells 18 consequential lies. Um, so, you know, he was lying to people. This is his way of trying to threaten Zuckerberg and, and uh, you know, the guy who runs uh, Twitter, uh, Jack Dorsey, I think is his name. Uh, he, you know, he's basically trying to threaten them to say, you know, support me and, and trash my opponents, essentially. So that's, that's what's going on. Janine, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Thanks, thanks for the uh, report from Hawaii. It's fascinating to hear that your governor back in March ordered everybody on the island to wear masks and boom, your transmission rate just collapsed. That's the same thing Austria, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic have seen. We could here too. Bob in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? Well, I was wondering what you thought about forced wealth redistribution. I'm generally speaking in favor of it. I know it's been in the news lately with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie and the taxes on the wealthy, but we've also had forced wealth distribution for decades in this country because if you, say, are a machinist for a major airline, just as an example, 
and you put your pension money away, or they do it for you for years, you're getting ready to retire. They're feeling poor. They declare bankruptcy. They don't have to change the CEO. They don't have to change the board members. They don't have to shut down. They don't have to move the headquarters. They just sign some papers. And your life savings disappears and becomes theirs overnight. Yeah. And I'm not yeah, talking you know who matching funds. I'm talking money that was part of your wage that you paid That's taxes correct. on already. That's correct. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and, the, and Reagan legalized this in the early 1980s. And Carl Icahn, who is one of Donald Trump's best friends and advisors, Carl Icahn was the guy who really pioneered this with the TWA bankruptcy. Uh, the, first the acquisition, then the bankruptcy, stripping it of its pension funds. Then they did it with Eastern Airlines. This was back in the, in the uh, late 80s, as I recall. And uh, then they did it with Eastern. And then, you know, they're, 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 I think American Airlines went through this at one point. They got rid of their pension funds. And it's not just the airlines. This is, this is now all across American industry. And Mitch McConnell yesterday, when he was talking about blue state bailouts, said that the, uh, the blue states, their public employee unions have negotiated pensions. Blue states pay pensions to their state employees. Some red states do. Most red states don't. And the blue states are paying pensions. And, and Mitch McConnell came right out and said, we're not going to bail out your pension funds. I mean, it's like to hell with workers. That's the official mantra of the Republican Party. Wealth distribution and how terrible it is when we want to tax the rich. But we've been wiping people out legally, taking their own money. Just yeah. because the company feels poor because they had their hands on it. And, you know, yeah, it's just I'm like with you. And just, and, and just because and they can abuses. But is a welfare abuse maybe Walmart taking millions of dollars in property tax concessions and setting up in a town, and then as soon as that wears out, they jump across? Now, corporate welfare is just fine. These guys, Bob, thank you for the call. These guys are all in favor of corporate welfare. They go for corporate welfare all day long, right? That's (laughs) You just saw $2 trillion of it. But human beings? being benefited by government policy? Oh my God, we can't have that. Elwin in Seattle. Hey, Elwin, what's on your mind today? About the notices and things that workers are getting threatening to cut off their unemployment if they don't go back to work. Um, Yeah, that's right out of the Labor Department. Uh, What nobody is telling these people is that they have a right to refuse dangerous job assignments. Um, There are certain conditions. This comes out of an OSHA regulation that the Supreme Court upheld in 1980. Uh, I know you're running short. I don't want to take up a lot of your time. But what I want to do is send you some information, and I would encourage you to get someone on your program from the National Employment Law Project, which wrote to the Labor Department, told them they were wrong. Uh, They wanted them to put out public clarification of these statements that they've been making. And uh, they also reminded uh, them that workers do have a right to additionally collect unemployment if there is a legitimate hazard of, uh, you know, in the workplaces they're being told they have to go back to. Uh, New York Times had an article last week uh, about workers actually being fired for for doing what they have a right to do. So I would be happy to send you some information. I do hope you follow up with the... uh, No, after after you called last week, Kathy, I, I looked into this, and you're absolutely right. 
and yeah. and and we do have that right. And uh, you know, just like in Texas, theoretically, you have the right to vote if you think that uh, vote by mail if you think that showing up in person will harm your health. Problem is, tell that to a worker who just got fired. Tell that to a person who can't get their unemployment check that their only remedy is through the courts because that's really all they can do. So they're going to have to go out and, and find a lawyer who's willing to defend them for probably no payment whatsoever. And when you sue the government, you don't end up with punitive damages or anything like that that'll incentivize a lawyer. And these guys at the Department of Labor, Eugene Scalia, I mean, he's a slick lawyer himself. His dad was the head of the Supreme Court, right? Um, you know, yeah. they are not the head, but he was on the Supreme Court. They know this. They're just playing a damn game uh, that they're going to continue to play right up until January, you know, when Trump leaves office, assuming God willing he does. And you know, it, it, we can say all day long, you have the right to get your unemployment check, but that doesn't mean it's going to come. You have the right not to go to work and not lose your job, but, you know, I mean, the, the, the remedies are simply not there if the administration is refusing to enforce the, the, the black letter law, the clear law. Well, yeah, I wrote an article about that. I've got two uh, out there, one on the uh, Progressive Media Project, got distributed via, via the uh, Tribune News Service, another one. Uh, for the but is there a solution that I'm missing here, Kathy? Well, no, here, here's one thing. The way that I, when I was researching this thing, OSHA has a process. This is all out of OSHA. Okay, so what the worker is supposed to do, if they believe they have a, a good faith and all that kind of stuff, they can withhold, and then they can say, I'll call OSHA, and OSHA come in, make a determination. The problem is OSHA is hugely understaffed, and they can't get out there. Right, and this could take a year. Yeah, but in the meantime, if there hasn't been a finding that the workplace is safe, that kind of takes away any argument that the worker has. To, uh, oh, I, I agree with you. You're going to win the argument, but you're going to lose the job and the income. Kathy, thank you for the call. Jeffrey D. Sachs, a university professor, director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, has produced some just absolutely extraordinary work over the years. The Age of Sustainable Development back in 2015, building a new American economy in 2017, a new foreign policy beyond American exceptionalism. He has a new book out. His uh, website, by the way, Jeff Sachs, S-A-C-H-S dot org. You can tweet him at Jeff D. Sachs. He has a new book out. It's called Ages of Globalization, and it's uh, fascinating, thought-provoking, in-depth analysis of kind of the history of globalization going back 70-some-odd thousand years ago. Professor Sachs, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thank you for writing this new book and for joining us. Tom, I hope you're well. How are you doing? I am. Yes, uh, knock wood. So you go through the seven ages of globalization, the Paleolithic, the Neolithic, the Equestrian, the Classical Age, the Ocean Age, the Industrial Age, and now the Digital Age. Give us a, a, a snapshot of what you're talking about here. Explain what you mean by this. The idea is to try to understand how humanity has related with each other, especially through trade and migration, long-distance spread of ideas throughout human history. When I was first studying economics many decades ago, I thought, my God, we are opening a new period called globalization. It took me quite a while to understand that while there are 
unique aspects of our globalization compared to the past. We've been at this global affair for quite a long time. And to understand the dynamics of global change, I came to understand over the course of my career and policy work that you really did need to understand the interactions of geography, the climate, the physical resources, the location of economies, how those uh, interacted with the the institutions uh, of government, politics, uh, and so forth, with uh, fundamentally the changes of our know-how, our technologies, and perhaps the most fundamental driver of change of them all. And in this overview of human globalization, of long-distance interactions, I emphasize this three-way understanding, taking physical nature, technological change, and ideas, culture, politics uh, as three sides uh, that are constantly interacting. I believe it helps us to understand what's happening right now, which is mass disruption to our lives, our understanding, our uh, nature of global interaction. So that's the purpose of the book. What does this mean for us today? What I think is stunning and uh, upsetting and unnerving is that we are absolutely entering a new phase of globalization. Many days in the COVID pandemic we hear, is globalization over? Are we reverting to uh, national or local economies? Uh, The answer is certainly not, especially in an age driven by digital technologies, which are instantaneously bringing knowledge uh, and all aspects of our economic life within global reach. So we're not reverting to uh, any kind of local economics. We're more interconnected than ever. And that's a basic truth. But what's also happening is that we are experiencing a deep disruption to our our economies work. COVID is obvious. We couldn't be more dramatic, of course. But what it has done is to dramatically accelerate the digitalization of every aspect of our economic life. Most of us are working from home. Payments, commerce, governance is all now online. Not all of it, of course, but a remarkable amount within a few weeks. Hundreds of millions of kids went to school online completely unexpectedly. But uh, while with lots of uh, difficulties, more seamlessly than one could have imagined over the course of just a few weeks. At the same time, global politics is uh, changing absolutely rapidly. Again, in this case, accelerated both by the pandemic and by Trump, uh, who is uh, the most incoherent uh, and narrow-minded president we've ever had, Uh, he's actually accelerating what was already underway, uh, which is uh, the end of the American-led global era to uh, now a truly multipolar global era where China, East Asia uh, more generally, India, Africa, Europe are each more independently acting and interacting regions. So I think we're entering a new kind of geopolitics. The U.S. has basically abandoned uh, leadership under the uh, weird uh, and unhelpful banner of America first. 
which is uh, getting us deeper and deeper into trouble on many fronts. But even beside that point, we are now in a, a different kind of global politics. Much of the day-to-day conflict that we're seeing with China or the rhetorical uh, skirmishing with China is really a reflection of this global change. The third aspect of uh, our global reality, of course, uh, is uh, nature itself. Uh, COVID-19 is only the most recent of a wave of emerging new diseases that reflect in a fundamental way how uh, humanity is impinging on nature and thereby uh, triggering new so-called zoonotic events where pathogens, viruses, bacteria, uh, and so forth spread from animal populations to human populations. In this case, from bats to humans, probably somewhere in southwest China originally. But this is just one of a series of such pandemics, SARS and Ebola and uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, uh, being uh, three other recent zoonotic emergent diseases. And sad to say, there will be more to come. But that's part of an even larger environmental story, of course, Tom. As as you know, uh, climate change, mass pollution, destruction of uh, the biosphere. In short, we are in a new global era, which will change fundamentally how we live, how we interact, and what we have to do to stay safe. It's remarkable. We have just a little less than a minute left, and you've raised so many large issues here. I'm wondering your thoughts on the emergence of digital oligarchs, essentially. Uh, Zuckerberg and Facebook have now said that science about climate change is going to be treated like opinion on Facebook, so climate change deniers can do whatever they want. Is this new digital age going to be one that's controlled by an oligarchy, essentially? We are in uh, the robber baron era of uh, the new digital economy where uh, Bezos and Zuckerberg and and a few others uh, think they call the shots, and for the short term they do. I don't think this will last long. It is phenomenal that uh, in a short period of time, Bezos gained $50 billion in the few weeks of this pandemic. It's not going to last. We're going to be taxing them. We're going to be regulating them. And we're going to be regarding these technologies as a common ownership of humanity, not the ownership of a few people. From your lips to God's ears, Professor Jeffrey D. Sachs, the new book, Ages of Globalization. Thank you, sir. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. Tom Hartman program. Professor Sachs, extraordinary book. I spent several hours with it yesterday. It is fascinating. Teresa in Pahoa, Hawaii. About uh, Hawaii being owned by foreign countries and stuff. Well, uh, I got mm-hmm. rid of squatters next door to me. I found out that my research, um, it was owned by the Deutsche Bank. Then it got sold to oh, a geez. Ukrainian bank, which aired it, uh, the property on Zillow that got bought by a Chinese fella who's specializing in Section 8 housing and pet-friendly houses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, this is, this is happening all over the place. Thank you for that anecdote, Teresa. That, you know, you're just validating my story. I really appreciate it. Exactly. And thank you, for, uh, thank you for watching us there in Hawaii. Lynn in Mobile, Alabama. Hey, Lynn, what's up? Uh, yeah, I'm calling in regard to imported goods from China and places like that. Uh, when mm-hmm. Jeff Sessions was my senator, he introduced uh, legislation to remove the requirement of 
places of origin for products coming into the United States. I don't mm-hmm. know whether it ever got out of committee or not. I called his office to register concern and complain about it, and they were very cavalier and said they did not know anything about it and sent me a letter thanking me for inquiring about something entirely different. But the hmm. point I want to make is um, I, I'm very fond of pineapple, and I haven't been able to find a Del Monte or Dole product of uh, uh, pineapple that is not packaged and produced in China or Thailand or the Philippines. And so hmm. my concern is that uh, Jeff Sessions may have been motivated by money, obviously. Uh, it's mm. possible that someone else will come along and motivate some other senator to try to introduce this legislation again, and then I won't have access to that information. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I mean, this is what happens when the Supreme Court says that it's okay for corporations to own American politicians, and which they did back in the 70s, and, and that led right to Reagan and the Reagan Revolution, and it's been off to the races ever since. Lynn, thank you for the call, and thank you for sharing your perspective with us. Thank you for being with us uh, these three hours today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It does require the active participation of all of us, frankly, you know, please, you know, share good progressive media with your friends and get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Be good to yourself and others. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 